Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 70 of UAB Green and Told, original release date Monday, April 25th, 2022. This podcast allows us a chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Want to listen into previous episodes? Visit alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold or look us up on Spotify and the Apple Podcast app. While there, leave a written review so more alumni can find us. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and assistant director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. Adversity is part of life. We all face various obstacles that challenge us to find ways to overcome them. But let's face it, in the end, many of the adversities we struggle with end up being trivial in the grand scheme of things. When you hear the story of today's guest, Preston Scarber, your perspective may be put in place. I had to take IQ tests to even say I can't go to high school. I had to now figure out how to do things because there was no one that I knew who wanted to be an engineer who was a part of police. As Preston will share, he had a fascination with numbers and science, which made engineering a natural fit. But first, he had to figure out how he was going to approach a career in a hands-on field. I had no idea how I was going to be an engineer when I couldn't use my hands or I couldn't climb a ladder. But I knew I wanted to be an engineer. Which leads to his career today, which is pretty cool. Preston will talk about how he's thriving professionally as an accident reconstructionist and how no two days are alike. Every accident, you have the same opinion. What? And every time a lawyer calls me, my first question for him is, say it again. I, 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 missed, I must have missed something. When met with extreme challenges in life, one typically faces a fight or flight scenario. That's the case for Preston Scarber. But for Preston, his extreme challenge would test even the strongest of us. You see, Preston is a quadriplegic, but that's not what defines him. Before we discover why Preston has spent an entire adulthood in a wheelchair, we have to know where he came from. And it wasn't a childhood in which he was interested in things like rockets. I started playing saxophone at eight years old, but grew up around music because uh, all my family was in gospel music. My aunt and my uncle and my father had a musical group that sang at churches, and so I was surrounded by music. So at eight was when I could play my first instrument. I was geeked up about that, and my whole life centered around playing saxophone and doing math. I like those two things. Everything else was just in the way. Sax and math. Kind of an odd combination of things, but kind of fun. Well, but when you think about it, um, music is math. M- music is just the passion of math. So it all fit in my head together. So I like math and music just fit in just right. So it was perfect. Who are some of your influences in music? Oh, wow. Uh, my band director, Mr. Vincent Perry, he was taught by a guy named Mr. Adams, who uh, was in Cahoots with Fess Parker and Duke Ellington and some of the old cats in, in jazz. So I, I got a chance to get some real deep musical roots in Birmingham early on. That's awesome. Growing up as a kid, were you a good student? Uh, you liked math, but were you good at everything? I was a lazy writer. I hated writing. Uh, my, my most famous uh, report card, I got a D in handwriting <laughs> in like the fourth grade. I, was, I hated writing. It was such a pain, but um, I always enjoyed the school process. I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed, I actually enjoyed taking tests, actually. 
but much more so math and science. As my father was a chemist before he became a surgeon assistant, we just did science and math in the house. So you'd think you'd be drawn to science, but you say, eh, not so much. Yeah, it was, it was okay. It was just a means to an end. Like, it was cool, but it wasn't music. Yeah, it yeah. Music and it wasn't math, so it was okay. What part of your academic career did engineering kind of slowly start to gravitate to something that you'd be interested in? Well, after I broke my neck when I was 14 years old, um, I couldn't do music anymore, but I still loved math. But I had to make a change because I couldn't write for myself anymore, so I could do math in my head. And the process of doing math in your head, you learn to understand patterns. You understand what's the purpose of this particular function I'm doing. And just thinking about math, you all of a sudden realize I enjoy that. And then I took um, high school chemistry in 11th grade from Miss Cindy Willingham at Huffman High School. And she pretty much set me on my path. She was the first teacher that didn't care my, about my condition. She said, figure it out, get it done. This is your assignment. I don't care how you get it done, figure it out. I, that challenge was something I never heard before. No one ever challenged me in a wheelchair. It was always, I always had an exception. Well, it's Preston, he'd be okay. Ah, well, we can skip it. He's in the wheelchair. No, she said, figure it out. You're smart enough, figure it out. So I figured out how to do math and science without my hands, but still be effective and still be able to push. So that's when I learned what engineering was. I didn't know what engineering was because there were no engineers in my family. No engineers I had connection with at all. My family was medicine and music. Yeah. Uh, when she told me that engineering is a mix between math and science, I said, that's for me. I'm, I'm all for that. Whatever that is, I'll do that. When you were 14, your life was changed forever. Um, uh, yeah, no, you, you can say that. Yeah, just yeah. talk a little bit about what happened and how it happened and how it affected kind of your life as a mid-teenager. Yeah, it was, I mean, I was 14 years old. Of course, we're, uh, every 14-year-old boy I know a uh, girl crazy, so I was too. All of a sudden, uh, when I broke my neck, um, I had... Uh, much more accessories than the average 14 year old male. So my life went from focused about focusing about what people accept me to more of how am I going to survive? I don't even understand what my body is now because I can't do what I want to. Before, uh, it wasn't a thought about, oh, okay, I'm going to get up and go get something from the refrigerator. Now that required several steps. And now there was uh, accessibility was my main focus now. And something I learned early on in my injury, but when, when you break your neck, your whole family breaks your neck. So the whole family unit changes. And it was more like us against the world because in 1985, the world was not accessible. The world did not want to see yeah. me. So we, we had a common enemy and um, I had to take IQ tests to even say I can go to high school I had to now figure out how to do things because there was no one that I knew who wanted to be an engineer who was a quadriplegic. How do you do that when engineering was such a hands-on and physical activity? How was that going to happen? So it was just 
it was us against the world. So I didn't fight with my parents as a teenager. We had a common enemy. So uh, my, my parents became my partners a whole lot sooner than most people do. Most of us get to love our parents when we're 25 and 30 and older. You can see how smart the parents are. But I saw that at 14. And uh, since they, and they told me because I was so hard-headed, I didn't let people tell me what I wasn't going to be. So they just had no choice but to join in. Yeah. What happened? What did you do to break your neck? Um, I was on a local swim team, neighborhood swim teams. We were going to local, local heats and other neighborhood pools. And the Birmingham uh, pools weren't fully um, prepared for racing. They, they were shallow water pools, three, three foot deep pools. But for racing, you to dive off of diving blocks. So um, at this one race at East Lake Swimming Pool, I dove in for practice laps and I hit the bottom and broke my neck. I tell people I broke my neck. I cracked my skull and bit my lip, and my lip really hurt. How long did it take you to find a new normal? With the injury, you obviously had your wits, you had your mind, but you weren't able to do things that you used to be able to enjoy. Um, I would say um, the first time that you're gasping for breath, and whenever you have a hospital injury, your lungs lose lots of fluid. So in the first few weeks, do a few days, a few weeks, you, you struggle to breathe because you're always producing the phlegm to cough, but you don't have the muscles to cough. So it's that point where you feel yourself almost drowning in your own fluids. And it was that point where I had to choose to fight to stay alive. After then, the, the doctors tell you your prognosis. Well, you're going to be this or be that for the rest of your life, and you may live five years. Now it's a fight against their opinion of it. So somewhere in that time frame, about three to six months, that's your decision with a spinal cord injury to decide, this is my life. I want to fight with it no matter what I have. Or you fold up and lament what you don't have forever. And I just chose to, uh, at, at 14, I chose to understand, I had to learn anatomy because I, I want to know about my body. I don't want a doctor talking over me. No, you talk to me. So I had to learn anatomy. I had to hurry up and learn biology. I had to hurry up and learn physiology. And I learned enough to understand what I need to do for me. And that's at the path, because once you choose to fight, if you're in the wheelchair, once you choose to fight, no one's going to help you from then on, because no one knows how to help you. Because you're different. You, you don't fit in any norm anywhere. So you, you choose to fight, and that pretty much sets your course. And I'm guessing that actually followed you into college <clears throat> at UAB as well, because let's face it, there's probably not a lot of kids, students, attending that are confined to wheelchairs. So what was, you know, the beginning stages of your experience at UAB like in classes, being able to get around campus, all of that? Well, my, my parents actually changed their whole life. My mother changed her work schedule so she could take notes for me and write my test for me. So she agreed to change her whole work because she was still a full-time registered nurse at the VA hospital. So she would go to class from in the daytime my father, when he got off work, he worked as a physician assistant at the VA hospital. 
any night classes I had, he would go to the night classes for me. And they were my hands and my feet. So I could do those things. I got to the point where I can figure out how to do things myself. But um, that's what we had to do. We had to do that as a partnership. And that's how we did that. We heard, had lots of naysayers, had professors to tell me or tell my parents to try to convince me to do something other than engineering or science because they didn't know how I would be successful. And they said, no, go ask him. And I just wasn't hearing no for an answer. It just it wasn't going to happen. I'll figure it out and I will we'll work it out. How did you envision things mapping out, not being able to use your hands and being an engineer, having to do all this stuff? I had no idea. I had no idea why I just knew I was going to engineer. I didn't know what I was going to do in engineering. I had no idea how I was going to be an engineer when I couldn't use my hands or I couldn't climb a ladder. But I knew I wanted to be an engineer. And um, it just so happened that during my education, computers became important. And I was friendly with computers, more, much more friendly than most of my professors. So, um, uh, so the niche was created for me just by circumstances that the world became computerized and I was computer friendly. So my niche in engineering sort of developed as I was going through school. Was it always going to be UAB? Was it the only choice for you because you wanted to stay close to home or were you looking at other places and UAB just kind of drew you in? Oh, no, I had the presidential scholarship to Auburn University. That was my first choice. At another presidential university to University of Pennsylvania. Only problem is uh, Auburn University at the time was not even slightly accessible in engineering. I would have to take all my classes in I think the sociology building. I say, well, that's not engineering, that's sociology. And uh, University of Pennsylvania, that's not down the street at all. Our plan was to go to UAB temporarily until Auburn became more accessible. Well, that didn't happen. So I stayed at UAB for a very long time, and that was the, it was the right choice. It was the best choice. You did stay at UAB for a while. You got your bachelor's, you got your master's, and you got a PhD all in Birmingham. How did the experience change? Obviously, computers help things a lot, but how did they change over your time on campus? Because I got to see my own personal struggle, struggle knew every single step. You sort, of, you sort of start to see where everyone else's struggle is. You see, and most of it is just fear. What are you afraid of? What's your, and coming to grips with your fear. What you fear, why you fear it. Um, you start to see what other people fear. And it's just an unknown. And my situation represents a humongous unknown. And do I want to face that? And you want to be different? Are you okay with being very different? Are you okay with not knowing the answer but still pushing your head? Uh, just having a sense of where you're going but not knowing exactly where that destination is. Are you okay with that? So you, you learn to grow because you learn to accept who you are. You learn, learn to accept what you are because you can't possibly evolve if you don't know what you are. What is it about material science and engineering that you enjoy? To me, uh, it's a mix between mechanical engineering or mechanics of solids and chemistry. So I'm, I, I like the idea of 
understanding how atoms arrange themselves. But I am practical. I want to go make a stick to go hit something. So yeah, setting atoms is nice, but I need to go and put some gas in my car. Well, I want to go fast. Okay, the, the materials in here combines both of those things. I get to study why matter behaves where it is, and then get to go do something with it. For a lot of my classes at the senior level, um, I stopped taking notes because everything that seemed so natural was like, I'll study this. I, I get it. I know the point. I get the purpose. What did you want to do for a career? You had all of this education all through, you know, undergraduate, graduate, <clears throat> and then the doctoral work. What did you want to be when you grew up? I had, all, I had envisioned going to NASA, of course, being a, a rocket engineer, because that's what to do, because you know all these fancy materials, but I'm going to go make some fancy space-based materials. And I was going to do that. And um, I said, no, but NASA started cutting back at the same time I was finishing. So I said, well, I'll go to a national lab. So I interviewed with uh, Oak Ridge of Tennessee. I got friends up there still working now. I was going to do that. And literally, I was about to go there within two weeks when um, my second boss, who would be Dr. Charles Bates, needed someone to do simulation, computer simulation of metal casting. That's where you pour liquid metal into a shape and get engine blocks and turbine blades and all kinds of stuff. And I did computer um, simulations for my whole graduate career. I said, okay, I'll do that for a little while, no problem. Didn't know that was going to be a lifelong bet for like 15 years. That's what happened. I started doing research in liquid metal casting and realized that, oh, I know why people like, I know why guys like this because you get to play with fire and dirt and explosions and pay you money for it. Of course I'll do that. So I ended up doing research in liquid metal casting for 12 years. And all of it at UAB, right? At UAB. So at this point, you've been at UAB, gosh, for 15, 16, 17 years or so. It was 20 years at that point. 20, 20 years. years. At UAB, from undergrad to when well, I left UAB research. So you're a true blazer. You're a blazer through and through. You can say that for certain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at what point did you decide to kind of take a change? Because you're not doing that anymore, and you're actually doing accident reconstruction. Mm -hmm. The um, the funding for casting research took a severe left turn around 2008, or when the market crashed. Well, a lot of American manufacturing just took a left turn, and casting was a major manufacturing technique. So no funding there. Well, I couldn't get much money, so it was time to look for something else, and. I left UAB and my current boss, Dr. Ray Thompson, who was my first boss at UAB, he said, hey, I heard you do co computer work. You want to come do something for me? It's like, sure. And he said, uh, he, he told me, what was an accident reconstruction? I said, well, I never heard of it, but I'll try that. And it was actually fun. Now I get to go wreck trucks and cars and get paid for it. Okay, I'll do that. Okay, let's talk about that. You get erect trucks and cars. What exactly do you do and how do you figure out exactly what happened? Well, it, it's interesting because uh, reconstruction is the, sort of the back end of research. Research, you put some stuff together and see what happens. 
reconstruction, you hear echoes of what happened. You try to figure out how it started. You have a few knowns, like uh, first thing, uh, vehicles on the road cannot fly. So, okay, I will assume that. Two, they're made of metal. There's not but so many ways to bend and reshape metal. And three, um, everything stops eventually. So I don't care how it was going, it stopped. How did it get to the, the stopping point? If I know those three things, I can make some pretty good conjecture about how they got there and looking at the evidence. Um, there's only a certain number of ways you can get those vehicles in that configuration. There's not but so many ways to wreck the car in that particular configuration. So you, you develop an opinion about, well, this is why I think must have happened within, within reason. This is about the only way it can happen. Go to court and testify and see what the other, other experts said, what the lawyer has for you. And that's what you do. How many cases do you take a year? Because I'm obviously thinking it's not just one or two. It's probably dozens upon dozens that you're looking at each time. You have 15 to 20 a year on average, sometimes a lot more than that. So that's a lot of work going into, you know, I mean, you're basically spending a month on each case. Yeah, pretty much sometimes, say, and on a busy month, it can be about three or four cases a month, all of them different. Um, all of them just as wacky. So uh, you have a whole lot more cases than that. It's, um, it's still the same basic math. You still try to understand how this happened, understand what the person saw and how, why they reacted the way they reacted. So you get into the more the human factors along with the mechanics of what happened. Is there just one crazy scenario that sticks in your mind of all of the reconstructions you've done that you're like, how did that happen? I can't believe it happened that way. Oh, wow. There are so many that you go through, like the seven-car pileup, ten-car pileups, massive fatalities. Uh, all of them, every accident, you have the same opinion. What? And every time a lawyer calls me, my first question for him is, say it again. I, 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 missed, I must have missed something. Because trucks don't fly, but uh, you have these trucks that go airborne. Uh, that car can have done that, but it did. So it's always, in every case, it's, I have yet to have a case where I knew what happened or could sense what happened right off. Every one of them. Well, pretty much, if you're calling an engineering service, you're beyond the easy cases. These, these are cases that are, are so confusing and so muddy that it's time to do some heavy calculations because nothing makes sense. Is it all a matter of taking a look at pictures and digesting all that, or do you go out to these scenes and take a look at the, the surroundings as well? You always go to the scene. That, that's, that's a hallmark because um, everything looks a certain way on on. on and photographs and on paper, but until you put yourself in that scene, you can't you can't get a good sense of what the participants in the accident saw. The fact that a shadow could be coming the wrong way, uh, trees blooming could, could could block block your sight. The road could produce glare at the right time of day. With with a few cases where the sun was at fault, just that one time a year. They're on one angle of the road and the right conditions where um, vehicles disappear right in front of you. 
looking back to when the accident happened when you were 14, did you think you'd be in the position you are in now? No, 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 that, no, there's no way. There's no way I could have seen this because it's, I didn't see me doing this when I was in graduate school. I had no idea. Are you having the most fun in your life? That's the one thing I'm truly blessed for. Every job I've had has been the most fun job. Literally, I could do it for nothing. I appreciate the pay, but man, it's, you want to pay me to do this stuff? I, this is like a hobby. Sure, I would do that. Where do you see yourself in another 10, 15 years? Honestly, looking at Dr. Thompson, who's been my mentor my entire life, he's still having fun doing what I'm doing now. So why would I stop doing that? Without the injury that you had, without the the diving into the pool and breaking your neck, mm -hmm. would you ever have the career that you have now? I'm sure I would have. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I would have. I tell people the Lord chose the right person because I'm just too hard-headed to, to do anything else. And I'm certain if I hadn't had to start fighting so early, I wouldn't have chosen UAB or engineering. It would have, have been something totally different. But I'm thankful for the path I was on because my sisters got a chance to see me go through school, through the struggles, and now they all have UAB papers and UAB letters behind their names also. That's Dr. Preston Scarborough, a three-time graduate of the UAB School of Engineering. He earned his BS in Materials Engineering in 1992, Master of Science in Materials Engineering in 1995, and obtained his PhD in Materials Engineering in 1998. Currently, he is a forensic engineer at Veer Inc. in Birmingham. And as a Birmingham native and longtime member of the UAB family, Preston definitely has a good idea of what it means to be a blazer. This is some of uh, my friends who've been to UAB and my sisters all agree. UAB is unique. UAB is a factory of education. They um, is meant for a certain mindset. You have to be hard-headed to go to UAB because they... Um, they encourage, they encourage you, they'll give you direction, but they will cut you loose and tell you, there's the mark, go get it. So you, you have to be hard-headed and driven to go to UAB, but it makes a certain type of individual once you get done. Even with impossible, ridiculous circumstances, they just get take the spoon and start digging. It doesn't matter if it's Mount Everest, it doesn't matter if it's a molehill. I got a spoon, I'll start digging. Don't tell me it's hard. I just tell me what I get done with. So that, that's a unique UAB trait. All, all the alumni I know, they are just too hard-headed. As I say, they're too hard-headed for, hard for their own common sense. That's how innovation happens. That's how you change the world. You just got to be hard-headed enough to believe that you can change be sure to listen in to all the previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. You can find them at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go Blazers!